Well, God truly is the fountain whence 10,000 blessings flow. And maybe some of us heard that song we sing from time to time about the 10,000 reasons we have to, have to have joy in our hearts because of what God has done and what God continues to do in this world and among us here. He truly has filled our hearts with joy. And when we take a moment to, to really take a step back and take in what God has done for us, even if we are in trial, even if our circumstances are difficult, we are blessed in Christ. And really the question for us is when we take that in, what is our response? How do we respond to the grace that has been showered upon us? Well, we already heard one answer this morning, and it came in the reading that Donovan gave us from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture, a passage that speaks to one of our statements of who we are as a people here at Brentwood Oaks. We are a people who are being conformed to the image of Christ, meaning that we are taking on God's character. We are becoming more Christ-like in the things we say, the things we do, because of God at work within us. And what we really have in those first couple of verses in Romans 12 is the journey of the disciple, a journey that begins with the mercy of God, in view of God's mercy. That's what the letter to the Romans is all about. All of humanity is in a fallen state, and yet by God's mercy, He sent His Son to rescue us from our sins. It's an incredible story that we take in. But Paul goes on to say, in view of God's mercy, our response is to offer ourselves. We offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. For this is our true and proper worship. That really is our worship, the transformed life, a life filled with thanksgiving. Well, what does that look like? Well, Paul goes on to say, Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, this depraved, this disarrayed, this chaotic world. Don't live under the world's rule, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. This is the grace of God. It's not only a, a salvation that is in the future, it is a salvation that plays out right now among us in the way that God is working on our hearts and really saving us from ourselves, creating us and helping us live in ways we are intended to live. Uh, the late preacher Fred Craddock had a phrase that I just love that talks about this journey of faith, this journey of the disciple when he says that the final act of grace is to make us gracious. The final act of grace is to make one gracious. That is our journey. And that's a journey we're going to see here in a little bit in this parable of the two debtors. So this brings us to the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to camp out in Luke chapter 7. This morning, and if you want to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7, we're going to look at a parable, a very short parable, but a parable that's embedded in a larger story. 
Now, we've started a series called Stories with Intent. We started this last week. It is a series based on the parables of Jesus, and we're going to work through different topics. Well, last week, we looked at uh, several definitions of what a parable is. My favorite definition is that it's a story intended to deceive the hearer into truth. And that's the power of story. So whenever someone is confronting us and they're trying to challenge our thinking, the power of story disarms us. So we're being told a story and we don't even know that our thinking is being challenged because we're immersed in the story. We find ourselves in the story and our challenge is thinking our thinking is challenged without us even knowing it. But also, last week we talked about different characteristics of a parable. What makes up a parable? And This is in conversation with an author named Klein Snodgrass, who gave us many different characteristics of parables. They're brief, they're focused on human stories. Even more, they're focused on God and His kingdom and who God is and God's expectations for us. There are themes of reversal, that we find typically in the parables. We're going to hear that, especially this morning. But also, parables are found in a context. And this parable that we're going to look at covers almost all of those characteristics. The parable of the two debtors. So I'm going to spend just a a few minutes setting up the context for this parable and really talking about the Gospel of Luke. When we read the Gospel stories... Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these stories of Jesus, what we are given are four different portraits, four different perspectives on who Jesus is and what his ministry was all about. And in the Gospel of Luke, the place to go to to find out what Luke is trying to tell us about Jesus, the best place to go, I think, is in Luke chapter 4, the beginning of Jesus' ministry, when he's in his hometown of Nazareth. And he goes to a place of worship, and he is handed a scroll. And the scroll is from the prophet Isaiah. And Jesus begins to read these words. Hear these words of Jesus' inaugural speech for his ministry. He tells that group of leaders, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. This is quoting the prophet Isaiah. Because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now we hear that last line, the year of the Lord's favor, and I think probably most of us gloss over that. But for the Jew in that time period, they would have connected that to the year of Jubilee. This year that took place every 50 years in the Jewish calendar. A year where where people returned to their properties. Where debts were canceled. Where prisoners were set free. It was a year of celebration and thanksgiving. And then Jesus says something remarkable there in Nazareth. He says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That is quite a statement. Jesus is essentially announcing that this new age, this new creation, this new way of living has begun right now with the arrival of Jesus. 
And so we think about the poor, the downtrodden, the, the people who were at the lowest end, the marginalized, were about to experience an incredible reversal. So this was incredible news for the people, especially a people who have been broken. Ever since the exile in the Old Testament, they have been a people who are oppressed, handed from one nation to the next, and now they're oppressed by the Romans, but they're also oppressed from within. They are oppressed by their own religious leaders. These leaders who have warped what God's reign is all about. These leaders who have taken the precious law of Moses and made it a great burden on the people because of all that they've added to these commandments, saying who's in and who's out. And among these leaders are a group called the Pharisees who were holding the people in a perpetual spiritual prison. They were oppressed. And all of this comes to head in Luke chapter 7. So in Luke 7, Jesus is talking about John the Baptist, his cousin, the one who paved the way for Jesus. And he talks about how the Pharisees accused John the Baptist of having a demon. And then the Pharisees had turned their eyes on Jesus and set their sights on him and accused him of being a glutton, a drunkard, someone who was a friend of sinners and tax collectors. And now Jesus has been invited to one of the Pharisees' house. Well, the tension has been built. This is going to be a story where things unexpected happen. And that's the case. And so, if you would, follow along in your Bibles. Or just listen to Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. Hear the word of God. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he, Jesus, went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed her feet or kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment now when the pharisees who had invited him saw this he said to himself if this man were a prophet he would have known what sort of woman this is who is touching him for she is a sinner and jesus answered Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the largest debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? Just think about that question for a second. Do you see this woman, Simon? 
I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she had not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. May God bless the reading of his word. In our searchers class earlier this summer, we watched a video about a little girl named Abby Wardell. And Abby was a little girl who had a bad heart. She had her first open heart surgery as a one-year-old. And a decade later, 11 years old, her heart continued to fail. She began to experience symptoms of a bad heart, extremely fatigued, even after doing very little activity. As it turns out, she was working at about 13% capacity for her heart. And the doctors knew it, certainly. The family knew it. And I think little Abby was getting her mind around it as well. She would not survive if she did not get a new heart. She needed a new heart. Well, in many ways, Abby's story is all of our stories, even though there are some here this morning who have a special connection to Abby. Uh, there are people sitting here in this room whose organs are not all original to them. They've had transplants. They've had to face the challenges of the body accepting or rejecting different organs that come into the body. We've had people here who work on different transplants of organs, and I can only imagine what that must be like. I can only imagine what that must be like to be on a waiting list. The apprehension. To think about how precious life is and how precious relationships are in those long days of waiting, I can imagine the, the keen sense of one's own mortality. But I can also imagine the, the sense of, of dependence upon someone else, the, the, the deep need for rescue. And I think in a spiritual sense, having this kind of mindset is quite an advantage. Which brings us to Luke chapter 7, a story about hospitality but also a story about the lack of hospitality. But even more than that, it's a story about a group of people who need heart surgery. And some of them recognize it, and most of them don't. You have Simon, the Pharisee host. You have the other Pharisees and experts in the law there at the table reclining with Jesus. And then you have this uninvited guest, this woman who is unnamed, except she's called Sinner. That's her identity. 
That is what she is known as in the community. This woman has a heart problem, and she knows it. And although her sin is not identified, we can probably fill in the blanks. The fact that the Pharisees are astonished that Jesus doesn't know about her sin really speaks to the public nature of her sin. She is a broken woman, and she's living in a culture of honor and shame, which is a bit foreign to us. What that means is that the shame she carries from her sin, the embarrassment, becomes part of her identity, and there is a major social price to pay for that, an economic price and a social price. She is an outcast. She is a woman with no hope. She's a woman without any real way to erase that public perception, public perception of who she is. She is faceless. She is invisible except for her sin that is always before her. But along with this comes a, a good sense of who she is from her perspective. She would carry no delusions about the goodness of her own heart. She carries no delusions about her ability to pick herself up by her own bootstraps. The only way she can move forward is for someone of high status to restore her. Someone to bring her back into the community. Someone to give her a fresh start. Someone to give her a new identity. Someone to give her a new heart. And I wonder this morning, how many of us come here with that keen awareness that we need some heart surgery? The truth of the matter is, everyone is sick. Everyone. Some of us recognize it, some of us don't. This world can be a cruel place. It didn't start out that way. I mean, this is a beautiful world. This is a world that is infused with the beauty of God, and He's given it order and majesty. He has designed it in ways that we're still trying to get our minds around, and there are some things I don't think we'll ever get our minds around, the, the complexity of this creation. And we think back to the opening of the story, the opening of Scripture, and how beautiful that initial scene was with Adam and Eve there in the garden. And really, if I were to use one word to describe what we have in the opening chapters of Genesis, it would be shalom, peace, harmony. Harmony between God and man. Harmony between man and woman. Harmony between humanity and the creation. It is a beautiful, beautiful scene there. But that story didn't last very long. We are east of Eden, and that didn't... That didn't take very long at all in Scripture. And what is life like east of Eden? It's painful. There's sin. There's anger. Malice. Rage. Greed. Lack of self-control a thirst for power and domination. We see it around us. We see it within us. Every single person is touched by what we call the fall and the power and the grip of sin. It is 
everywhere. Every one of us has experience with this. Every single person in this room, because of the fall, has a hole in our hearts. We need heart surgery. And it doesn't matter about our upbringing. It doesn't matter how good our parents are. Maybe sometimes that can mask some symptoms. But at the end of the day, every single person in this room is broken and flawed. And either we know this or we don't. And so, Jesus is sitting here reclining at table, and he sees the Pharisees and the way they treat this woman. And he knows this is, this is not right. He knows that the Pharisees have the wrong sense of self. They are self-deceived. And so Jesus confronts these Pharisees, and he doesn't confront them with a lecture He disarms them through a story, a tale of two debtors, a tale of two hearts. You have two debtors, and one owes a great amount of money. The other owes even a greater amount of money, so much money that it's almost comical. And that's the thing, both of these debtors will not be able to pay this back or to change the metaphor, to switch it slightly. Both of them need heart surgery. But the woman's symptoms are apparent to everybody. In a very public way, the Pharisees' symptoms are a little more subtle. And I would say a lot more dangerous. Because of the subtlety of their symptoms, they carry this delusion that they can make themselves right with God by their own strength, by their own wisdom and power. They can fix this heart problem on their own through their discipline, through their perfection. They are dying And they don't even realize it. And that is a dangerous place to be. But we'll talk about them next week. There are plenty of parables about the Pharisees. This morning, I want to hone in on the one who owed the greater debt. The one who owed the greatest debt. I want to hone in on the story of the woman because... We should be able to find ourselves in that story. We can find ourselves in the Pharisee's story easy enough. But this morning, let's take a step back and go back to the story of the woman and to remember our own story. As it turns out, as Jesus is unveiling what the kingdom of God is all about, this invisible reality, this invisible realm, she becomes the model disciple in this journey of faith. She becomes the great example of who we are to be. All of us are to be. This is a woman who sees herself very clearly. She sees her failings. She sees her sin. She feels it every time she walks into a room and she she can feel the stares of those who are looking at her, telling her she does not belong. And so she cannot hide her shame And she comes to Jesus with a broken heart. She comes to the master surgeon. She comes to the only one who can fix it. 
Now, it doesn't say in the text, but I imagine that she's already had an encounter with Jesus, and there's, a, there's an interesting play between love and forgiveness. Did she love first, and then she was forgiven, or was she forgiven, and then she loved? I think it's maybe a combination of both. I lean toward the latter, because to me it makes more sense with the parable of the debtor, that those who are forgiven much love much. Those who are forgiven little love little, whatever she experienced, she felt, and it was professed to her that her sins were forgiven. And that's unexpected. This rising star, Jesus, this this rabbi, this teacher who has already done some amazing things, that's not the way the story was supposed to go. He had every right to shame her, Yes, her sin was very public, and Jesus knew who she was. That's not what happens. And in the presence of those Pharisees, Jesus accepts the unacceptable. Jesus loves the unlovable. In a word, Jesus extends the hand of mercy. Mercy. The world is going to be fixed through mercy. And this woman takes this in. This precious gift, this unmerited gift of grace And she responds. And she lives out in an example the model life of the disciple. She responds with thanksgiving. She responds with worship. She provides for Jesus the hospitality that is sorely missing from the Pharisees and those hosts there. The grace that she has experienced has made her gracious. The grace is flowing through her and now out of her. She's transformed. And it all began with an act of mercy. I can only imagine that this grace would continue to grow for decades to come because for those who are forgiven much, they love much. And those who are forgiven little, love little. So I guess... The question for us to leave with this morning is, do we see ourselves clearly? When we look in the mirror, are we people of self-sufficiency, self-righteousness? Are we people that have it all together all the time? Or are we a people who depend upon the grace of God at every second of the day? Are we people who recognize that we need heart surgery in a major way? Little Abby Wardell was 12 when she received a heart transplant. And it wasn't lost on her. The price that was paid for her to have this heart, a little boy her age had died and had given up his heart for her. 
and she was grateful for this. But it's interesting to hear her talk about this new heart. Whenever she first had that new heart and she was in recovery, she thought something was wrong because the heart was working so well. She could actually hear the heart beat for the first time. Uh, she had this energy that overflowed in ways that she didn't think was possible. She didn't know it was supposed to be this way. She didn't know if this is how people are intended to live. She didn't know what to do with this energy. And because of this act, because of this grace extended to her, because of this precious gift of life, she was and is eternally grateful. So it is with the nature of the kingdom of God among us. We have been given a new heart. God, through the prophet Ezekiel, tells a broken group of people, he says, there will come a day when I will give my people a new heart and I will put my spirit within them. This has been fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. It is there for the taking if we would accept this gift of grace and let grace work through us as we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice as we renew our thinking, as the grace of God leads us to become more gracious. Well, maybe this morning we come here and our hearts are out of sorts. Maybe we have become distracted by our own doing and we have followed the wrong path. There's an opportunity to come back to the center, to come back to the great healer, the only one who can provide salvation for us. We want to offer that at this time of invitation. Now maybe you've come to a point where you've heard this story and you know that the answer is Jesus. You don't have to know a lot, but the answer is Jesus and you're ready to be baptized, to be united with his death, to be raised to walk in newness of life. We can accommodate that. If you want to join in this morning, you've talked to us, you, you've been immersed and you want to, to join in with what God is doing among us and God has a lot in store for us here at Brentwood Oaks. There are a lot of great things happening that he is doing, and he is opening our eyes to it each and every day. We invite you to come now as we stand, as we sing.